This is Josh Tyson, UX Magazine. Recently, I had a really nice conversation with Alan Cooper. That's right, Alan Cooper, father of Visual Basic. Alan Cooper, co-founder along with his wife Sue of Cooper. Uh, Alan Cooper, inventor of personas. Alan Cooper, father of two sons who uh, both skateboard. So, I skateboard. We spend the early part of this interview talking about skateboarding. And surprisingly, how skateboarding is a lot like design. Plenty of parallels. Uh, it's a really nice conversation. A lot of fun talking to him. So, let's stop just listening to me. Here we go. My older son, Scott, who's here now with his baby, my first grandchild, he, um, when he got out of college, he did a stint for a while working for, um, uh, he worked for Slap Magazine for a while, and then he, he worked for designing skateboards and wheels for a while, and, and uh, he's just, he just left a job in, you know, he moved to Copenhagen, mm-hmm. and uh, he was working for, uh, uh, he was freelancing for a, a sort of a European Slap Magazine called Bitch Slap. Bitch Slap. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Google it, and uh, uh, he um, now he's a dad, and he's you know kind of priority getting, shift, get getting out of that, yeah. But um, uh, he was working for a group called Art Rebels, and uh, and Art Rebels and Bitch Slap have a kind of a friendly relationship, and it's sort of European alternative art, you know, heavily influenced by skate culture, stuff like that. Um, but my other son, Marty, the younger one, he's 28. He's a, um, he is a, an animator and, um, uh, he's, he does these, he, he's, he worked, he worked for a while. He worked on, on, uh, some big movies, you know, he worked for blue sky and, Real FX and and worked on some big feature length Hollywood movies with you know big stars and stuff mm-hmm. as a storyboard artist and uh, but he found it very unsatisfying work and uh, so after he finished the last movie he kind of just started noodling around on his own <clears throat> and he created he sort of invented a new way of animating. Mm. And um, he goes by the name Ombre McStees. Ombre McStees. I yeah. like that. And uh, so if you Google, go on to like Instagram or YouTube, go to check out Ombre underscore McStees. And uh, his, uh, he does these very, very simple, very, very low-tech animations um, where he actually holds the transparencies with his hand and he takes pictures of him with his smartphone in the other hand, using the real world as the backdrop. Oh, that's a really and good it's, idea. It's about as low tech as you can possibly get, but his characters are very lovable and interesting. And he does these short little animations. Well, his buddies started bugging him to make a, a reel. And so he finally put a bunch of his animations together into like a two minute reel. This is a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
And uh, so Marty did it, and he posted it on YouTube, and his buddy put it on Reddit. And it went to the front page of Reddit and stayed there for 12 hours, and Marty got 4 million hits in 24 hours. And Pow. The rest is history. He's, yeah. he's, now, he's now famous. And uh, so now he travels around the world making commercials for like 7-Up and, and uh, the Cartoon Network and shit like that. Um, well, you know, that's kind and, of the great thing about skateboarding. Um, that I, I mean, when I was in high school and skateboarding, it was hard to convince my mom of this. But uh, there's just so much, uh, there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of freedom. Yeah. And yeah. the great thing about it, too, is that you can do it with friends, obviously, but it's also, it's just kind of you against yourself. So it's you learning about your own limits and then how to kind of smash through perceived barriers. So it doesn't surprise me when I see so much good work coming from people who skateboarded, you know? Yeah. Like, it makes total sense to me. Yeah. It's kind of a no I, I know. In my generation, it was surfing. Sure. I was never a surfer, but... But uh, it was, you know, the, the older generation, it was that thing of, you know, standing by the river fishing. Is it just because you're standing by the river fishing doesn't mean you're not intensely creative or, or working hard. Well, that's cool that you mentioned Slap Magazine, too, because that, that was one of the magazines that I wrote for for many years. So your, oh. your son probably knows uh, Mark Whiteley was the oh, yeah, editor-in-chief sure. there. And now I believe he's a product owner at Apple, I think. He worked uh, for Nike for a little while. Now he's at Apple. So. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, and it turns out that um, that really, really good, good friends of ours are um, uh, were they're really good buddies with Peter Whiteley, Mark's dad, mm. and they and our good friends have a son who's also a skater who's a, a, a year or two older than Scott, who uh, who is a contemporary of Mark's. And, uh, so there's a lot of connections cause we were down in Silicon Valley and, and so they all, they all knew each other. That's, yeah. It's amazing. Cause injury. both of my kids, both of my kids, you know, got, got interested in videoing the skating mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was kind of in many ways, uh, how they got into, you know, one of them is in the, movie business and the other ones in the magazine business because they they uh they had their in high school they created this little skate film company called green eggs and uh you know one of their buddies has gone on and is is now a, a fairly successful and prominent uh, skate videographer and uh kyle camarillo yeah when you look at like yeah. spike jones i mean he got his start making skate videos and now I know. he's an Academy Award winning director. So Yeah, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I know my kids are the ones who said, this guy's Spike Jones, you gotta check him out. And uh, and I've become a fan. <clears throat> we should talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in design. If we may. Uh, I, yeah. I guess the, the big news for you recently was a uh, merger with Catalyst. Um, yes. And how, how does that, how has that changed daily operations for Cooper? Well, uh, you know, I just, I just wrote an essay about this in that 
the great, you know, there have been a lot of uh, design firms have been swallowed up by big companies lately. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of, of, of pundits out there who are, have been announcing the death of the independent agency. But uh, the thing is, is that when you, when you acquire an independent agency, you no longer own an independent agency. Now you own a dependent agency. And the, the great value of an independent agency isn't necessarily the quality of their design work, although certainly the quality of their design work must be very high in order for them to succeed as an independent agency. But what they really bring to the table that's of great value is their outsider perspective. They can mm-hmm. see what's going on inside an organization better in some ways than people inside it can see. And, uh, and uh, they, uh, they have the... Uh, they also, you know, the outside consultant, their paycheck is signed by the consulting company and not by the client company. So they are in a unique position where they can speak truth to power to the, uh, to the otherwise important people inside the client. And, uh, and they can say, well, I know you think that way, and I know you've been doing it that way, but according to our research, that's the wrong way. And if you're inside an organization where everything inside the culture is saying, this is the way you have to do it, it's really hard from within that organization to say, no, let's do it a different way. And it's, it's, so there's, there's enormous value to be outside. And well, it's kind of poetic that we're, we've, we're coming off a conversation about skateboarding. Cause if you think about it in a sense, uh, think about a city, everyone who lives in the city uses it one way, thinks of it one way. And then a pack of 10 skateboarders come thundering down the street and they're showing you a completely different way to think of your surroundings and, and, and you know, that requires that kind of outsider mentality, that ability to, to separate yourself a little bit. Oh, so agencies kind of have that power. They're kind of like those, yeah. those surly street skateboarders. Saying like, it's, well, it's, so, it's so true. Yeah, because they what? can say, look what you've got here. You've got something here that you're not even seeing and we're going to help you see it. But then once yeah. once they become once they're in the belly of the beast for too long, then obviously they don't get to see the outside anymore. Yeah, the uh, my brother-in-law used to say that we 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 concreted our world, and the skateboarders showed us how to use it. Yep. And uh, and then we and <laughs> so we knobbed it. <laughs> yeah. It's so sad. It is. I hate it is. seeing those knobs. Yeah. Um, so what's so the thing is, is is what I'm saying, and this is me in you know in marketing mode in self promotion mode, as I'm saying uh, what Cooper, the company has done is we believe so much in in the value of being the the independent agency that we're um, that we've gone out we've bought another uh, company so that we can be bigger and better at doing it, at being the independent. Mm-hmm. Um, but a remarkable thing has happened, which is by Cooper merging 
with Catalyst, we have brought an outside organization in to Cooper. And so we're battling with all that same stuff and we're also getting the benefits for, for I mean, you know, there's that, there's that time when you bring the outsiders in and you get the benefit of their different way of looking at things. It mm -hmm. takes a while for everybody to get onto the same cultural uh, 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 runway, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, we're very much in the honeymoon right now. And it's so great. Everybody is stoked. Everybody's excited. And everybody is looking at the work they do every day with fresh eyes. And it's so energizing. The, um, I mean, just when, when the, the New York guys, just as a kind of a thanks, they, that what they did was they put together a package and they mailed it to the Cooper office and it had a bunch of New York bagels and, and a bunch of classic New York food that you can only get in New York City. And then they also had some really nice um, kind of biographical information about all the individuals in the New York company to introduce themselves to us. And uh, it was... It was so generous and so thoughtful and so well-produced and so deftly done that everybody in San Francisco looked at it and they went, whoa, you why didn't me. we think of this? What? It's, we should have figured this out. We should have done this. And, and uh, we've got we've to respond in kind. We have to send them something from San Francisco that shows them how great we are and that introduces us to them. And, um, and everybody is upping their personal game. It's like we couldn't have asked for a better illustration of the value of an outside organization coming in and saying, of course you're great, but there's always another way to look at things. And you, everybody always benefits by looking at them from a different point of view. And did Cooper have a New York office previously, or is this, is this kind of also giving you a presence on the uh, opposite coast? This is our first presence on the opposite coast. We've wanted a New York office for years, and, um, and, and we've never really... I mean, it's expensive to start a New York office, and... and not having outside investment money, we just didn't see that as really viable and we were doing just fine here without it. And, uh, and so this, uh, you know, merging with, with Catalyst gave it, gave it to us, gave us a New York office all wrapped up with a bow around it. And it was part of the appeal. Um, so it's been, it's been, a great experience and it continues to be a great experience We're we're still um uh what's the word integrating we're in the post-merger integration phase where you know we're, we're getting 
I mean, there's a lot of back office work that has to be done, mm-hmm. but we're sending uh, San Franciscans to New York and New York is sending New Yorkers to San Francisco and we're working on projects together and we're learning how they do things and they're learning how we do things and, and they have different approaches to client relationships and project management. We have different approaches to, to uh, design methodologies and everybody's learning. And when people are learning, it just gets more exciting and, and there's more energy. And, uh, and so it's a, it's, a really, it's a really good time. Well, and it sounds like there's a serious undercurrent of just genuine thoughtfulness that probably gives everything a lot more energy. The, yes, thoughtfulness is, I mean, I mean, thoughtfulness is a, is a really good word to describe how we are, and it's a really good word to describe how Catalyst is, but it's just so easy to fall into your own day-to-day rhythms, and, uh, and your thoughtfulness starts to take on a sort of a, well, we were thoughtful back then. <laughs> so, so we're a hell of a lot more thoughtful today than we were a month ago. And, uh, and that's just a really good thing. So it's very exciting. And, and I think it's, um, it's good for our clients. It's going to be good for our organization. And it's great for us to be positioned as a counterexample to all those people who are saying, oh, well, all design is going in-house now because it's not. No. Well, and if ever there were an industry where, you know, stale behavior can cost you, I think this is probably it. So it's good that you're, it's like fresh blood. Yeah, that's a really good point. A really good point. Now, I don't for an instant want this to be construed as a criticism of in-house design because I don't for a minute see it that way the when when I you know 23 23 and a half years ago when my wife and I started what was the very first interaction design only company. There were industrial design firms that had some interaction design and there were some visual design firms that were doing some interaction design, but we were the only company that that's all we did. And we were the first. And uh, um, we, uh, in order to highlight the value of what we were doing as different from anything else. I was the guy who stood up and said, we're not going to do programming. We're not going to do usability testing. We're not going to do prototyping. You know, what I want to do is pure unadulterated design. I want to go out, I want to observe users, I want to do analysis, and I want to do design. And the design we did was on whiteboards and paper and we communicated it verbally. Um, it was really, really important to me to cut a bunch of proven stuff out of my world so that I could prove some new stuff. Mm-hmm. And now what's interesting is, is so many you know, decades later, 
interaction design, user experience design is this huge field. I mean, I mean, it's not only is it un, not unknown, but it's 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 known as as the place to be for young creative people, and uh, and so I want to be all inclusive now, and the the one thing that I know we need is is we need design and we need outside design and we need inside design and we need prototyping design and we need greenfield conceptual design and we need people to do strategic design and we need people to to do design at the pixel level we need it all and we need lots and lots of it we still don't have enough of it so you know the uh i used to use the analogy of growing tomatoes when you when you grow a tomato what you do is you take the tiny little tomato seed and you put it in a little tiny bit of dirt and you put it in on your windowsill and you put it there because it's out of the rain and it's out of the wind and it's protected from the too hot sun because it needs to have this protected little environment in order to germinate and sprout and grow until it's a few inches tall. At that point, you have to get the tomato plant out into the garden. You need to transplant it out there where it can be watered by the rain and blown on by the wind and exposed to the powerful sun so that it can grow and get the nutrients it needs. And if you keep it on the windowsill, it'll slowly stop growing and turn yellow. You see, there's a time to protect it, to nurture it. And there's a time to stop protecting it in order to nurture it. And just accept that the tomato is going to go skateboarding without a helmet. <laughs> That's right. That is exactly right. And um, and so it's it's um, one of the things that happens inside a corporate culture. And I've said this for years: is 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 when you, as a startup, when you create a company, you're creating two things: you're creating a product and you're creating a culture. And you can maybe go on to another product, but that culture is a thing that is kind of permanent. And it's interesting, too, because when you think about experience design, uh, a lot of the, the process element or the process pieces of it are all, if you're paying attention to what you're doing and, and being intelligent about it, they're, they're not easy to replicate, but they're definitely, it's possible to replicate a, a favorable result. But when it comes to culture, that, that is such a hard thing to nail that um, it seems like that, you know, if you, if you can get the culture right, then everything else kind of has a better, much better chance of falling into place and you're going to, you know, be able to keep producing great work. Yes. And so many entrepreneurs don't get that. And, and so many of there are a lot of entrepreneurs who say, uh, uh, they say, we'll worry about culture later. And, you can't. And then there's the other people who say, oh, we're all about culture. You know, we've got the ping pong table and the, the foosball table and we've got the, the cafeteria and all that stuff. And the, you know, and the, the bring your dog Friday kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what culture is. No. And that isn't how you build it. And so one of the lessons I learned from the permaculture people 
is they say, if you want an oak tree, you don't go out and plant an oak tree because the oak tree is going to fight and struggle. If you want an oak tree, you don't even have to plant, plant it. What you do is you put up a little fence that keeps the deer and the, and the, and the gophers away. And you make sure that the soil chemistry is conducive to growing oak trees. And, uh, and, and that there's no predators in there who are, who, who are going to eat the baby oak seedlings. And, and then what happens is an oak tree will spring up by itself in that space. Because what will happen is a squirrel will come with an acorn and hide it there. Or a blue jay will fly in and drop an acorn because they're constantly doing that with the acorns. And so there's, there, acorns are stuck everywhere. They, an oak tree will grow in a place where it's conducive to growing oak trees. Hmm. And what, it's the exact same thing with cultures. You, is if you try to create a culture with foosball tables and free lunches, you, you don't know what you're getting. No, and I think know? a lot of people see through that too, that, you know, cause it's, it's like, well, yeah, of course they're, they're, they're feeding you free lunch there cause they don't want you to leave. Right. <laughs> you just stay there and work. Right. And you and can see you, so many job descriptions just like tripping over themselves, trying to list all the, the cool shit that they're offering. But, but yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's not culture. That's, that's yeah. frosting. What, what happens is you create a culture by, <clears throat> by, demonstrating to your people that you have their back, that you don't jerk them around and that you'll stand behind them in a conflict and you'll support them. And when they come to you and say, you know, I really need, you know, a new computer or a better chair or something to do my work. You don't go, well, can you do it for cheaper? Instead you say, okay, you know, and what happens is, is, that's how you build a culture. You build a culture from your values. The culture emerges from the exercise of your values. Mm, and it's like the tomato and like the little oak ceiling. You got to exactly. nurture. Yes, exactly. And so, so it's, it's um, the thing about, about Cooper and Catalyst is we have very, very similar values. So we have very, very similar cultures, but we have very, very different behaviors. And I think that's the thing that's non-obvious, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the organizations are coming together kind of seamlessly, um, even though we, we do things very differently. That's about and, the best uh, you can hope for there. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you wonder it's, about, like, uh, you know, Adaptive Path, a wonderful team of people there, brilliant minds, and then they, uh, by all accounts, like Capital One was a good fit for them. Like, they spent some time figuring out, like, like how it was going to work. But those are two, like, the, the goals of both those entities are quite a bit different. So you, you kind of do, you, you're forced to wonder, like, what's going to happen when, they're, when they've been baked in there for a year or two years? Like, how's that going to affect both parties? Well, and that's exactly the question. And 
and, and we see this all the time is that is that uh, people, for example, they come to Cooper U and they come together and they do this really intense uh, training where they learn how to value this user-centered design and they learn these techniques and the language and they're in a milieu where there are other people who have who also value the techniques of the language and the and the customer centricity and then they get all empowered and enthusiastic and then they go back to their to their day jobs and and they walk in all very excited and and then they they find that well they have to go to the staff meeting on Monday morning and and they look at them and say well you know how's this going to fit into the schedule and can you demonstrate the ROI and and uh, <clears throat> and and it, they proceed to succumb to that death by a thousand paper cuts you know and at the mm -hmm. end of a year they they no longer have that enthusiasm and they no longer have that empowering vision of how to do things uh, in in support of their their user community and um, I mean it, you know is entropy never sleeps in including in in corporate culture or maybe even particularly in corporate culture sure this is something that uh, I've been thinking about too uh, uh, as I've been thinking about you <laughs> it's that uh, yeah. It was something I heard, uh, it was an author on Charlie Rose. I think he'd written a book kind of looking at different business partnerships, like successful business partnerships across industries. And unfortunately, I don't remember the name of the book or the author, but he, you know, he was making the point that these really successful partnerships are kind of like a marriage. And, and when they really gel properly, like ama amazing things can happen. And so I, I'm curious, seeing as you started Cooper with your wife, with Sue, do you think that you know, having that, bringing that foundation into the venture gave you uh, advantages that would have just not even been possible if you'd been going it on your own or even maybe with, you know, with a business partner instead of someone who's like your partner in life as well. Uh, absolutely, that's true. I mean, you, whatever you do, I, I, you know, the, the Zen wisdom of Al Cooper is that all swords cut in two directions, you know? Mm -hmm. So... One of the great strengths of Cooper is that it's a um, it's a mom and pop operation, and one of the great weaknesses of Cooper is it's a mom and pop operation. Um, and and Sue and I work really hard to to not be mom and pop, except in instilling that value equation, mm -hmm. you know, and. Uh, <clears throat> And we suffer from that, but it also means that our work is of superb quality, and our employees are are um, feel like we're that we're not going to sell them down the river, like so many companies. They're saying, you know, I'm doing fine up until the layoffs come. You know. Yeah. And um, well, it's easy to create a family-like atmosphere when you have a husband and wife, a mom and pop. It's literally, I, I do not recommend it. I do not. <laughs> I, I, you, you have to be, you have to be special Absolutely. to, um, to start a business with your spouse. 
and and most people can't do it. And um, I mean, if you can, if it works for you, then I highly recommend it. But it's 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 like it's exactly like a design problem. You can't look at the software's behavior and say that's a good design. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the user's goals and in the light of the user's goals, you can evaluate whether it's a good design or not. You, you can't, it, it, is, there's, there's really no such thing as good design in vitro, good or bad design in vitro. Yeah, well, none of it exists in a vacuum, right? So there's no silver bullet approach to anything. Well, and it's the, um, it's the notion that, and I think we talked a little bit about Alexandrian design, the idea that, that design is problem solving for a context that's given to you by others. Mm -hmm. And it's not something you can think up on your own. So, so I mean, design that you do to make yourself happy is art which is a wonderful thing. I, I love art and I'm a big supporter of art, but art is not design. Design is problem solving for others. And, and they're, they're very, they have very, very different goals. And, and I, I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you eavesdrop on, on an artist and you eavesdrop on a designer, it, it, to an outsider, the work looks the same, mm -hmm. but it's not. Let me ask you this too, like as uh, obviously experience design has grown radically in, in prominence and then you have the, you know, the, the acquisitions that we've been talking about kind of signaling that business leaders are on board now. Um, yeah. I'm also noticing that people, consumers, customers, users themselves seem to be more keenly aware uh, that they're being designed for in a, in a way. Yeah. Does, does that make it... Does, does that pose design challenges when, when users become more aware of kind of like the considered considerations that go into designing experiences for them or does it make it easier? Oh, I think it makes it easier. I mean, the, the challenges have never come from the outside. The challenges have always come from the inside. The, it's, it's, it's the industrial way of looking at things is why should I spend money for that? Will it make me money? And what happens is, is, I mean, I fought the battle, you know, telling people all through the 1990s and 80s, too, for that matter, telling people, you need design. And, you know, they would look at me and say, what do I need design for? You know, the programmers are doing a fine job. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and even in the 90s, when it was very, very clear to those people who were beginning to use software in the wider world that the mass market was developing. It was just very clear. But if you were buried in your industrial processes of creating, you know, back office software, it was still really hard to see, you know, talk about loss of perspective. But when all of a sudden uh, media became digitized, when everybody's photographs were digital and everybody's movies were digital and everybody's news delivery service and telephony and and uh you know their photography and all the music when it all became digital uh it it created the situation that allowed um uh, consumer electronics and all of a sudden it just became obvious 
because there were people who were not trained technology users and they just couldn't use the old stuff. And, and all those jokes about read your manual and, and IT support were all came about then. But then of course it was the, the invention of the, of the smartphone that put all this computer technology in people's pockets and everybody immediately had the perfect demonstration of how easy software could be. You know, they could, they could push a button on their iPhone and it just kind of gave them what they want. And, and then they would sit down at their desktop computer and they would go into this twisty little maze of passages all alike and they'd go, I, I didn't know how good it can be, but mm -hmm. now I know how good it can be. So don't give me this crap anymore. And so that's the best argument for any designer inside any corporation is to say, if we give them the same old crap, they're just going to go to our competitors. And, uh, and somewhere along the way too, I mean, you, you came up with the idea of personas that, that seems like a, a tool for kind of doing just that. I mean, now, now maybe they're, do you see the, the value of personas diminishing at all as, as more and more people now just kind of get that they need to incorporate experience design into what they're doing? Or are they still a powerful tool for kind of, especially like communicating nuanced design decisions? Well, they're, they're an immensely powerful tool for, for, um, wrangling all the stuff that you learn in the field and using it effectively in design design just because design has been more widely accepted doesn't mean that it's gotten any easier i think in many ways it's gotten a lot harder and a lot more sophisticated and you you need you need very sharp tools the personas is just one of those tools we've invented a whole bunch of other ones and and you need them all um Maybe not all at once, and maybe not on every project, uh, but it's like when you go into the office, you know, you turn on the lights, and you know, I I could imagine some projects where you turn out the lights, but in general, you, you don't even think about that. If you walk in and the lights are off in the office, you go, "This is going to be a problem," mm -hmm. and and to me, personas are. I call them the bright light under which we do surgery. They're not, they don't make stuff happen by themselves. But why would you work without a bright light? You know, they're, yeah. they're just incredibly powerful, incredibly useful. Um, but <clears throat> there, there are so many other design tools we've developed. Personas is the one that that people know because they're they're the one that's so sound biteable sure and uh i i happen to think that that probably our most powerful design tool that 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 was invented at cooper is the notion of pair design and uh but that hasn't gotten anywhere near as much traction in the wider world of design simply because there's still this notion in people's heads that that the economics of industrial industrialization apply namely why should i pay twice for what i can get once mm -hmm. and the answer to that is that's bogus math when you put two heads on a design project you get an order of magnitude 
better quality at a much higher rate of speed. Yeah, and I mean that's kind of the internal struggle too with within this industry is is explaining the the need to invest up front because you're, you're asking people to invest in something that, that you know has value, but that struggle always exists. It seems to to try and really get people to understand that you put the money in up front, you you make money at the other end, or at the very least save money. I mean you you're happier. It's, yeah, and I mean and and it's and that is not new and it's not rocket science it's it's just it's like people there's there's a sort of a meme has emerged well this is software we can do it for cheap and uh and there's or to also assume that you can just copy someone else's design and it'll it'll yeah. you know work for yeah. you too yeah but that's like saying i can copy the behavior of of the way somebody else works in their marriage and it will work in my marriage not yeah. understanding that 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 shit is is you can't extrapolate that way. I mean, no. there might be there might be some wisdom to be gained by observing somebody else in their marriage, but translating it little, literally ain't gonna work. Nope, that's your own journey. <laughs> so, 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 Josh, I want to talk a little bit about some kind of half baked ideas I have. Lay them on me. This is this is where my thinking is going, and. I, you know, you, you know, your, your thoughts simmer and bubble for sometimes for a really long time before all of a sudden you go, oh, I see the pattern. And, and, you know, maybe I'm slow and maybe other people have seen this pattern before me, but what I realized is, is for so long, I've been trying to sell this notion that user experience design is focuses on the junction between your company and the people who use your products and services. Therefore, it's of strategic value to your company. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, and, and so I've been using that observation as a lever, you know, with my salesman hat on to sell my services to client companies. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, I realized that it kind of flips the other way around. Is when enough people in business agree with me and internalize design and apply design to what they're doing, you all of a sudden have a second. Um, you arrive at a at a second level effect. Which is, which is you're no longer fighting for your place at the table, but all of a sudden you have a really good place at the table and now your responsibilities have grown to ones of having a kind of a moral dimension, an ethical dimension. Is, is if I'm going to be having this much effect on the behavior of the entire organization, I'm also directing their ethical stance and the ethical direction they take. And so you can start to see this in stuff like, um, like there's been this recent brouhaha on the net about this company called People, P-E-E-P-L-E, 
where they want to do a Yelp for individuals where you can unilaterally rape people. Yikes. And That's like internet concentrate right there. Yeah, exactly. And But it also means that you can anonymously assassinate people. Okay. Well, you can tell that this is coming from a design-aware organization. Okay? But there's, there's, there are deep ethical questions raised by that design. And the designers can't just sit there and say, I'm going to give this application really you know, empowering behavior. Because you have to say to yourself, is this really behavior that we want to empower? Because you're no longer on the sidelines giving advice. You're now in the beating heart of the beast, directing where it goes. And the nature of businesses, the nature of corporations is they're sociopaths. Corporations have no morality. They, they're optimization machines and they're optimized to make money. And if they, yeah. if, if a corporation makes money by killing babies, it will optimize the killing of babies. Yeah. They're real psychos. Yes. So, so, you know, look at Google, which it was, it was famously begun with the don't be evil motto. They just reorganized into alphabet and something that hasn't been pointed out very widely is that Alphabet, the, the umbrella organization for Google, no longer has don't be evil in their motto. Okay, so, so where, who holds the, the ethical steering wheel of an organization? I say... It, it used to be that it was in the hands of the inventors, the people who conceived of the product. These days, so much of what's being built is not so much new conceptualization as much as it is new uh, manifestations. And it's the, it's the designers who hold the, the ethics of an organization in their professional hands. Yeah, and, because like products and services now are more and more under the umbrella of design, of experience design. So, so you're, yeah. So, so now designers, which is interesting, because for a long time, you know, the designer gripes that you hear again and again are like, no one's listening, no one understands what I'm trying to do here. So now we're to a point where maybe that's that's coming true for designers. Like, yes, they they have their seat at the table. So yeah. now, are they are they ready to? to take, take charge a little bit. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is the new challenge is, is designers have to, you know, and this is my revelation and, 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 uh, you know, when I, <laughs> I go back and I look at the first presentations I ever did in the very early nineties, about interaction design. And they were all like a, a long series of rhetorical questions. You know, how do we solve this problem? I think this is an important thing that we need to pay attention to. 
There are users out there who are being frustrated. How can we address this problem? It wasn't like I was standing up as an expert and saying, here's how to solve these problems. I was standing up as a, as a student saying, I want to solve these problems. I want to think about them. I want to understand them. And, um, and I find myself back in that same position where I don't have a lot of answers at this point, but I, I see that this is the new important question that's bubbling to the top, which is how does a designer wrap their head around the ethical dimensions of a design problem? Yeah, and how do they wield this new power responsibly and ethically? Yeah. So uh, one of the guys I follow on Twitter I like is a guy named Umer Hack. And he is a, a very uh, outspoken critic of what he calls butlerware, which is young software entrepreneurs, web entrepreneurs, who are building... Uh, software for privileged white people to do what their moms used to do for them. Mm. You know, finding parking places and getting their dry cleaning done and yeah. stuff like that. And, 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 and hack is a great name for anybody in the software business. I have to say, yeah, he lucked out is spelled H A Q U E. Ooh, is, yeah, so it's a fancy hack. Yeah. <laughs> is he's asking the question, is this what we should be doing? Yeah. And, and that's a really good question. And, and cause there's all these young kids coming out of school with stars in their eyes who want to go to Silicon Valley and be an entrepreneur and, and join a startup. And, and they, and they, they, they're attracted by the siren song of new, some new company that's saying, yes, we've got, you know, uh, you know, we've got designer kibbles for your dog delivered by UPS. Got foosball and, tables. That's yeah, our foosball table. And you have to ask yourself, is this something I should be involved in? Yes, I could, as a young person, I could join this organization and I could make the delivery of kibbles superior. Do I want to do that? Is it the right thing to do? Because just the same way a company bakes a culture while they're baking their first product. I think a design professional bakes their own professional ethics as they bake their career at their first job. Well, there seems to be some confusion too between, uh, it seems like people assume that if, if an app or whatever can make your life more convenient, that it somehow made your life better. Yeah. When I think those things are, are very distinct and they're, they're, there's definitely ways you can leverage technology and experience design to, to genuinely improve people's lives. And then there's ways that you can just free up more time for them to waste doing something that they don't need to be doing. Right. And, and it, you know, we had an earlier discussion about alternative agriculture. And one of the things that you learn when you study permaculture is what's good is not necessarily convenient or easy and what's convenient or easy is not necessarily good. And, and so, so the, 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 the kind of, um, the, the, this notion that, 
well, with computer technology, with web technology, I can make it really easy to, to, to arbitrage my unused couch at night for people who need a place to sleep, um, is not necessarily uh, something that's going to make the world a better place. Yeah. It's, you want to you wanna be asking bigger questions. So there's, um, there's a bunch of really interesting, uh, you know, data points in here. Uh, one of my favorite is, is, uh, is the story that Dana Meadows, who's the inventor of, of, uh, systems thinking, uh, talks about a, uh, uh, it's a housing development somewhere in Europe. I think it's in the Netherlands where what they did was they, they, they built a couple of, uh, of developments. Uh, I think they were apartment buildings. Uh, they did it in, they did two buildings or two phases and all the apartments were absolutely identical in every single respect. And at the end of the first year, they went in and looked at it and they found that, that one of the one half of the development used a third less energy than the other half of the development. And they couldn't figure it out because everything about these buildings was identical. All of their facilities were identical, all of their features, all of their square footage, everything was the same. And it really threw them. So they went back in and they started looking really harder to find what the difference. And what they discovered was that uh, there was indeed a tiny little difference. And it was the placement of the electrical meter. It turned out that in one half of the development, the electrical meter was placed in the basement. And in the other half, the electrical meter was placed in the a foyer of each apartment. And so it meant that, that half the people never saw the meter spinning and the other half of the people saw it every time they walked in and out of the building. And the people who could see the meter spinning used a third less electricity. Yeah, you hear similar things about uh, the effectiveness of those signs uh, that meter your speed and then flash it at you if you're, oh, yeah. if you're going over the speed limit. That that's that Those signs are way more effective for deterring speeding than uh, even like notices saying that there's, uh, you know, there are planes with radars clocking your speed and you could be mailed a ticket. Like the yeah. real deterrent is that sort of uh, in-your-face reminder. Yeah. Well, and they've also done experiments with um, uh, <laughs> uh, people were, uh, where they put up, uh, like uh, some of these experiments started out, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, 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 faculty lounge at universities where they had a uh, an honor system for buying coffee every time you you bought a cup of coffee every time you poured a cup of coffee you're supposed to toss a quarter in a jar mm -hmm. to, to, to buy a new coffee and uh, what they discovered is that is that there were a whole bunch of people drinking coffee who weren't tossing a quarter in so they put up a sign saying you know you put your quarter in this means you you got to do it yada 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 and it didn't make any difference and then somebody put a picture up of a pair of eyes 
<laughs> looking. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the payment went way up. <laughs> yeah. And and it's, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, rationalists would say, well, that's crazy, that could never happen. But in fact, uh, people from birth are trained to recognize faces and they respond to them. And, uh, and it had a big effect. So these are all design decisions. Yeah, I mean, we're strange kind of weird creatures and uh, yeah i think the only way you really realize how to design for kind of the weirdness that the latent weirdness is by getting in the field and, and it's uh doing your research it has um it can have uh an outsized effect on what's going on in the world and if you are designing things without looking at the ethical dimension, um, you, you, can, you could get lost. I mean, you, you end up becoming the, um, you know, a, a, a drone, a, a minion, a, uh, a imperial stormtrooper. <laughs> You know, I mean, the Imperial Stormtrooper, you know, goes home to his wife at the end of the day and says, oh, honey, I had a tough day oppressing the populace. <laughs> and, and, you know, at a certain point, there's, there's a point of leverage where you can, where you can, where your work can have an effect to improve everyone's quality of life. And it's not at the Stormtrooper level, but it's at the design of the systems that support the Stormtrooper. My thanks again to Alan Cooper. Thanks for your time. That was a wonderful chat. Uh, lots of food for thought. And how about that? Now that designers, now, now that we have our seat at the table, it's time to realize that we have the steering wheel. We're driving the ethics of our organizations. So we asked for this power, and now we got it, and it comes with a lot of responsibility. Uh, Alan also uh, made reference to another conversation he and I had. That one uh, focuses on food and agriculture. Uh, Alan, when I was talking to him, was on his farm in Petaluma. So if you'd like to hear that, uh, head over to natch.is. Uh, it's Natchcast episode 31. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>